Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 90, The Heroes Behind the Heroes, Part 3. I'm Pat Ryan, looking forward to bringing you the next chapter in this story. So far, we've met Dr. John Hansen and learned about the goals of his academic research to develop machines that can understand human speech, and about how he discovered the audio recordings from Mission Control Houston during the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, and wanted to use them to explore the use of language by large groups of people working together to solve problems. More than just asking your phone how to cook a brisket. Well, we followed him and his team as they struggled to find new hardware to outfit a 50-year-old audio tape player that they needed so that they could listen in on the flight control team in 1969. When we left our heroes, they'd pulled a rabbit out of a hat and found an audio playback head that could read 30 channels at once, just the thing they needed. And if you've been following this story, you can guess that this means they're about to encounter the next roadblock. And you'd be right. That's where we start part three of the Heroes Behind the Heroes. Here we go. Roman statesman Seneca said, luck is a matter of preparation meeting opportunity. And that would explain why good luck has a way of coming along right when you need it, if you're a person who keeps working to solve your problems. John Hansen got lucky when he found the tapes of the Apollo 11 mission control team, the raw material for his academic research. The University of Texas at Dallas professor is trying to develop speech recognition technology that can work with large groups of people who are talking to one another while trying to solve problems, so we can learn more about how the successful ones work. He was a bit less lucky to find that the audio existed in analog form on reel-to-reel -reel tapes and could only be played back on a 50-year-old machine that wasn't equipped to play all 30 tracks of audio on those tapes at one time, which is what he needed to have happen so that he could digitize the tapes and maintain the relationship in time among the separate conversations on those tapes. But as luck would also have it, he found some help in running down a piece of hardware that would do the trick, a new 30-track playback head that had been sitting on a shelf in a warehouse in Belgium. He was hoping that his luck hadn't run out. In the process of kind of getting that built, we still needed to have kind of a full hardware solution on how to digitize this. So that meant finding a preamplification system for each of the channels, and then a digitizing process that would allow us to keep up with each of the data rates for all 30 channels at the same time. Let me try to simplify for me. Okay. You're talking about finding a way so that when you could, if you had a 30-track playback head, that those 30 different channels, the audio from each of them, would be maintained their integrity, but also be recorded digitally in some way that you would still be able to keep them synchronized with one another to do your ultimate task, which was to, to be able to do this research. So, so 
The best analogy I can give is imagine that uh, you are trying to capture the audio from uh, a symphony. And you have 30 instruments on stage. And each one of them has a microphone. And you're wanting, you're, you're going to take the audio from each of those microphones and you're going to blend them together. So imagine now that someone has done that 50 years ago onto the tape. Uh, now you need to go back and pull each of those off individually, but you want to make sure that they're all synchronized. So this way you can look across all of those audio channels as a collective group. And so to do that means that you've got to have a digitizing process that can keep up, that when it digitizes one channel, it doesn't fall behind on any of the other channels. Uh, so that means you have to have pretty good analog to digital conversion. Fortunately, we have a company down the street from our university called Texas Instruments, who was <laughs> the leader of analog to digital conversion and invented the integrated circuit, Jack Kilby's work. So we were pretty lucky that, you know, obviously these types of technologies exist today. In this case, though, technology was only part of the solution. Hansen needed more human help to bend the technology to his will. He found some of that human help close at hand in one of his own students. My name is Tuan Nguyen. Um, I study biomedical engineering um, at uh, UT Dallas, and I graduated in 2016 of August. Biomedical engineer, what does that, what does that mean? for somebody who's not smart, like me? Well, pretty much it, it deals with, it, it's very broad. Um, it can be dealing with a lot of things, but mostly uh, a lot of uh, medical devices. Um, you know, anything from the uh, from the hospital beds to the EKGs, the men, you know, the measures, the, the heart rates and stuff. I mean, it's very broad. I mean, you can do a lot of things with it, but I'm not really specifically specialized in Henry ever. So it's just a degree for me. If you're there majoring in biomedical engineering. How did you get involved with John Hansen and his work? Okay, so I was doing my senior project at the time and uh, Dr. Hansen was pretty much my project mentor. Um, he managed about eight groups of uh, senior project at the time. So, I mean, I didn't really get to hear about all this project that he's been proposing um, until my last day at the expo, that my last uh, second semester. So, I mean, you know, he had eight teams, so I was kind of shocked and surprised that he looked at me. You know, he was telling, oh, yeah, we have thing, this thing going on with uh, NASA and, you know, this Apollo 11 project and stuff like that. He looked at me, Tom, would you want to be a part of it? You know, I was surprised, like, I don't even know. I mean, you know, he had eight teams. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, students under him, but I guess he saw something in me that I, I really didn't see in me, so... Explain to me what the project was. How did he present it to you? What was he trying to do? So he, uh, I mean, he says something about historical events that we're trying to preserve um, this Apollo 11 tape because, I mean, it's been locked up in the vault for about over 40-some years. So he's afraid that the tape's going to get decayed and, you know, forever be gone with the, uh, with the historic events, you know, the first man on the moon. So, I mean, that's what he's trying to do. Is if, so I'm, the, I'm like the last guy that he wanted recruited to be sent down to NASA and kind of, get you know get all these tapes done for him and for for NASA I mean you know it's really for the public interest uh, will it be for engineers or or researchers yeah so he did have a specific task in mind when he recruited yes, sir. you yes sir so I was the fifth member last member pretty much to the team and uh 
And then we have a first meeting as well. And he would send me all these emails regarding to the project. And it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, you know, I, I really don't understand what he's trying to do. I mean, I, I did get the overall point of what he's trying to do, but for my specific role, I really don't know. It was for the vague that time, right? Until the first meeting then, because I think the skills that I built up in this senior project, it helped me in completing this text pretty smoothly. Uh, what, what skills were you bringing to the group that he needed you to, okay, that so he needed you much, to use? Yes, sir. So I guess you see that my work ethic is one thing. And um, I, I deal with a lot of SOLIDWORKS because I was responsible for uh, building electromechanical models of the middle ear uh, for our project. We had two different uh, you can say sections of the project. It's like a project within the project. So uh, I was responsible for solely on uh, developing an electromechanical model of the middle ear. And, you know, kind of like education tools for K-12 and to kind of uh, representing uh, the middle ear bones, the and, three that we have. And and this was for some other project or Hanson's project? Um, th that's the senior project that he was mentoring us um, in with, with Abijet. He was also a, assisting a mentor as well. Um, yeah, but that project is so I, I developed the skill of using SolidWorks, which is like an AutoCAD. Um, that I would draw up stuff and I kind of print it or go cut it based on the dimensions, all the exact dimensions and stuff. And I think that's what he needed as well because that's what I've been doing, uh, trying to build a, uh, was it a front plate, a front face plate that can actually implement into uh, the Soundscriber. Soundscriber is the big tape playback machine from the 1960s, the one that could only play back one track of audio at a time from the 30-track recording of the Apollo 11 control team. Wynn was joining the project when Hansen had a new 30-track playback head in hand, but still needed help to get it integrated into a newly designed digitizing system. Well, that project is pretty much, there's no training. <laughs> there's no training whatsoever. So when the first, uh, when the first time that the meeting was holding place at the, in, in one of these cochlear implant uh, rooms, this is, we're trying to figure out our problems, how to pretty much fit all the connectors that the 30-track the, the head was built. Because Soundscriber, you know, you have to get through in the back to really connect all the wires. So that's a little problem that we have uh, an issue. Is that the challenging part is that um, there's little holes. It's small. It's too small for the connectors to come through. So we had to find a way how to convert that into the smaller connectors that can go into the back of the Soundscriber and kind of... Uh, I can go get into that a little bit more details on, on the on this constructing part of it. But for yeah, but for for now it's just pretty much that's what we're trying to issue. That's the first issue. So at the time that you came into the, the, the project, Hansen was already aware that the tapes would have to be digitized and they have to build some hardware in order to simplify and, and speed up that process. And and I guess you helped them figure out how to do that? Yes, sir. So everything was, I mean, it's all options. So we look at different options on, on mixers and, and, and pretty much storage. So we how much storage we need to, to well, the first, um, the main part, the goal is to get all the Apollo 11. And that is it. And so we need all this storage and we, we kind of calculate, figure out how much storage we need. And also the best mixers that can handle all 30 tracks. Um, so we, we did a lot of uh, plannings and organizing and, and also I have a triage down here that also so did. I'm sorry, you have a what here? Triage. So pretty much what, how can I organize data and what, what else can I work on besides just digitizing the tape? 
So I would pretty much listen to all the Apollo 11, um, the whole the whole missions, and I kind of jot down notes on what happened in this part, what they do in this part, from takeoff to landing to splashdown, pretty much. When you when you showed up here and you, as you started to talk about looking at the soundscriber and figuring out the mechanical aspect of how to how to make the changes. Um, how did that present to you as as somebody who with with experience in school building these mechanical devices um what did you see as the as the really the the main problems you were faced with in trying to take this ancient elephant of a machine to do what you wanted it to do today <clears throat> the first week i would say down here ness i was very very challenging it's it one of the stressful week for me and uh, well, prior to me coming down here, it takes me about two months to really get all the um, equipment ordered and kind of test it. We I actually start building the DB25 connector from scratch. So all the wires <clears throat> that actually going from the DB25, which is connecting to the mixer, and all, it, it connect all the way up to the, the, the 30 track read head. Everything was built, uh, I constructed from scratch. And, and I'm sorry, explain what a DB25 connector is. Um, a DB25 pretty much is, is connectors where it holds per channels. So each DB could, I can get about eight channels out of it, right? And then, so I need about three, uh, three DB, three DB25 connectors, which would hold each of 10. So it's 30 tracks. So it will hold 30 track 10 each on the, uh, on the DB25 connectors. And this is the wiring then that's yes. connecting the playback head to yes. the recording device? Yes. Okay. So you had to you had to design that? Yes, we had to build that. So I actually had to go order those DB25, you know, just, just the head itself, the connectors itself, and kind of solder over, like, I don't know, 200 wires or more. It's, it's very tedious. <laughs> so I'll do one, one wire at a time, soldering and, and kind of like convert the, the, the big connectors of the heads uh, kind of convert down to smaller connectors kind of like so the wires everywhere so I mean it's, it's just crisscrossing everything and it look I mean we have pictures of that as well um, but yeah it, it's a process it's the two month process and that's you're saying just to wire in this piece of hardware that had been developed and get yourself ready to start the uh... yes so everything had to be ready at on campus before because you know I can only test about uh, if the signal is going in right or how the sound is you know because we have no way of testing the real heads until we get down here and implement it into the sound scriber um, but the whole process from day one drawing up the circuits uh, how the wiring is going to be uh, what to get and, and pretty much make it neat and nice and before we come down here and plug it in just plug it in right if only it were that simple. When we were done, uh, we took the full system, uh, drove down here, uh, my student and myself, and we went into Soundscriber, and I was really hopeful that Greg was going to have a team of NASA engineers standing next to me and going to install this. And Thank you, sir. We'll be taking it from here. Yeah, and that was, that was I was hopeful about that, <laughs> but, but that didn't happen. Uh, I have to say, without Greg, we just would not have been able to do any of this. This is really just, you know, his support was really helpful. But for this, you know, I turned to my student. I said, well, look, I worked as a technician. I put myself through college, you know, soldering and building stuff. I said, I think I can do it. Because my student said, Dr. Hansen, I don't think I can do this. I said, no, 
let me figure this out. So uh, I was on my back uh, underneath the Soundscriber system and rewiring it myself. Um, and he was passing me pliers, screwdrivers, and we were doing rewiring. And we had to be careful because Soundscriber is a pretty big playback system. Half of it has the motors to actually move the tapes and then the adjustments for the read heads. But the other half actually is an amplification system that you could uh, hear the audio. And that amplification system is all based on tubes. Uh, and the voltage in, in some of that space is 480 volts and some wow. crazy amount. So you don't want to be putting your bare hands up in that space. That's kind of dangerous. So my student uh, was, he had to stay outside uh, or not us, but just handing me stuff. And uh, it was a big challenge. I took a lot of pictures because I wanted to document it. I kept telling my student, if we mess this up, we're going to be in real trouble because we would have destroyed the only playback system that actually exists. And I, I have to say, NASA, I, I, I don't know why they allowed me to do this. Maybe they just didn't know, but they let me do it. And uh, it, we, we were able to get everything installed. We actually built a patch panel uh, for the front of Soundscriber because the system in the past had one um, wire coming off that was time code and a second wire that would actually have the uh, analog uh, unit that, or the audio that was coming off that particular channel. Also the one channel that was off being played channel. back. And you know, Greg was actually very helpful because uh, uh, you need a lot of amplification for that. The audio signal coming off that one channel is really not high enough to to uh, have it go through an analog to digital conversion process. So you need a lot of gain on this. And so this was one of the things we had to spend some time on trying to find a good pre-amplification system that would uh, amplify all the channels at the same rate. Did you find something that existed? Yes, we did. And, and fortunately, we were really lucky in that regard because uh, if you look at the music industry, you know there's lots and lots of, of audio recording systems uh, that assume that you have multiple channels. And so these resources, Tascam and Fostex are the two manufacturers. Uh, there's lots of, of equipment out there. And so getting the preamp set up was actually not too difficult for us. We were happy with that. The Greg that Hansen's referring to there is Greg Wiseman, an audio engineer here at NASA's Johnson Space Center. He had gotten the tapes of the Apollo-era mission control teams delivered from the National Archives back to Houston and was on hand ready to help. So Hansen showed up with his new recording rig and this new 30-channel head, and we went in and we began trying to install the new equipment. Uh, the first step was to remove the old head and affix this new head to the mounting plate. Um, we also had to figure out how to manage all of this new wiring. The design of the Soundscriber was to accommodate for a couple of wires for a couple of channels, uh, and now we had 30 channels, and so we had this thick bundle of wires coming off the head and not a lot of real estate to figure out how to route it um, so that it wouldn't be in the way. Um, the cool thing is that Hansen and his team had already done a lot of homework beforehand, so they had taken measurements of the Soundscriber cabinet um, and built up an input panel that we could mount directly to the front of the machine. Um, this input panel had four D-sub multi-channel connectors. So the idea was, was that we could take this snake off of the head and route it to the back of these connectors and solder, solder it onto the connectors. 
So um, we found an area. We, we, what we did is we removed one of the audio connectors, the old audio connectors that was built into the soundscriber. And once we punched that out, it left a hole uh, from the, the front deck of the, of the tape deck that we could take this snake and work it through that hole into the guts of the soundscriber cabinet and then come around the back and solder it onto those, those D-sub connectors. So that part worked great. It looked great. Um, the next step was to make sure that the head was properly aligned to the tape. Now the only way to really do that is that we have you have to load up a tape that has some audio on it. You roll the tape and then you make adjustments to the head so that you're hearing back the audio that you expect on the right channel. Um, the head that we the new head is still mounted on this same little adjustable block that you turn a little crank and it moves the head up and down the width of the tape. Now, we only have to, once we get it aligned, we would lock that down. We never, we would hope to never have to use that again. We just want to line it up this one time. Um, so we start trying to figure out how to do that though. The, the problem is, is that the tapes that we have, it's, it's intermittent comm audio, so there's not constant audio across all of the channels all of the time. Um, ideally, if you're going to calibrate a new head uh, that you're putting on a tape machine, you'd have a calibration tape. Uh, a calibration tape is going to have um, some kind of reference tone on every channel of tape so that uh, once you make your alignment, so that you can make your alignment. Um, but we didn't have that. I had researched some calibration tape vendors months before and couldn't find anybody that had a, a, a one inch 30 track calibration tape. So that was a problem. Um, but the one thing that we did have was iRig timecode. Timecode was recorded on uh, channel one for every tape that we have. And uh, the timecode is it's really cool. You can run that into an iRig uh, decoder and it'll give you precise GMT uh, timing for the tape. Um, but audibly, it sounds like a constant square wave with, with the same exact level. Um, so we figured that we could use that as a reference. Uh, so the idea would be that we would, we would move the head until it, uh, we started hearing iRig come out of channel one. Um, and then we would kind of move the, t the head back and forth until we, the, the, the audio level was the strongest. Um, so once, once, it was, once it was perfectly centered, I mean, once the, the level coming off channel one was the loudest that we could get it, then we assumed that it was perfectly centered over channel one, and we hoped that the spacing on the head matched the spacing of the tracks across the tape so that if channel one was aligned, then channel 30 would also be aligned. So once we did that, uh, and we got channel one aligned, and we were hearing good, strong iRig timecode coming off channel one, we began playing more tape and started listening to the other channels to see how they sounded. Now right away, we noticed um, that there was a lot of crosstalk, or there was some crosswalk, crosstalk between channels. Um, but we weren't completely sure if this crosstalk was a problem with the new head, or if it was a part of the original recording trying to understand what you're hearing and troubleshoot that without a baseline understanding of what you should be hearing uh, made it difficult. So we, we 
put everything together in the Soundscriber. We started rolling tape and uh, probably it took maybe three or four days of adjustments because, you know, when you adjust the, the head, it's still mounted actually on these little mechanical flywheels that you would rotate. And the hope is that we would set it to one spot and then lock it, never change it, because then it would actually hopefully be in the sweet spot across all 30 tracks. Where the tracks would have been when they ran across the record head That's right. 50 years ago. That's right. So so, uh, uh, so we made those adjustments. There was a little bit of uh, re-engineering that we had to do here. We found out that uh, in order to kind of minimize all these cables, uh, for the reed head, we actually routed all of the wiring through a harness to the to the back of Soundscriber to route it inside the unit. And then we set up a patch panel on the outside with three different uh, connectors of 25 pins each where we could kind of get uh, eight to nine, um, or actually, sorry, 10, 10 uh, channels off of each uh, connector. Uh, and that allowed us to actually make things cleaner so you wouldn't have all these wires running all over the place. Um, but what we didn't realize was that there were some grounding loops that took place on this. So we had to go back and add some additional grounding uh, uh, capabilities on this in order to get the digitizing process done well. But after about three or four days, we were able to figure it out. Uh, my student, and I think Greg, was also involved uh, in trying to help make sure that that took place. But uh, that was yet another engineering challenge to overcome. Wait, let me stop there for a second. This part of the story is much more fun and exciting when Tuan Nguyen and Greg Wiseman tell it. So let's start with the first day I was here. So <laughs> I got a feeling that's going to be different than the other days. Yeah, yeah. the first day. Um, so me, me and Dr. Hessen came down and we, you know, we hooking our system to the Soundscriber and we have a, a little bit of issues. Um, with the channels bleeding, kind of cross-talking from iRig all the way down to, I think, eight to nine channels, um, which is not a good quality of, no. of audio, right? Uh, it was bleeding, so it took uh, took about a week to get a resolve. I remember one time I was calling Dr. Hansen from, from here, uh, selling Dallas, we have a problem. You know, despite of Houston, we have a solution. So <laughs> Dallas, we have a problem. So, I mean, it was a stressful week, right? So trying to figure out what is the head is, is kind of mis mysterious uh, head. So, I mean, we're trying to figure out what's wrong with it. So we started making some recordings, but on our initial recordings, when we started monitoring it, we noticed that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of crosstalk there, initially. There was a lot of, something didn't sound right. And there was a lot of noise. Um, so that stopped us right there. And so Tuan um, and Dr. Hansen and myself, and we got on the, we got on a teleconference with uh, John French, was, who was the, um, the guy that had provided the head. And so we started looking at the wiring diagram for the head and trying to make sure that there wasn't some mistake in the way that they had, um, they had wired it up to those connectors. For that whole week, the first week, I mean, it was just trying to figure out how, why this bleeding is taking place. And we was that we did some groundwork to it, some ground wires, and kind of. I think the the last solution that we have, I mean, we try. I tried a lot of solutions um, on testing how how to resolve these problems. So the last thing that we actually did was I flipped two wires, and it works. The whole week, just two wires. You mean switched them? Yeah, from ground wires to the negative wires, and it worked. 
the whole first <laughs> week just come down to two wires. So he made one little jumper uh, change and everything cleared up. All the, a lot of the crosstalk went away and, um, and we were able to start rolling. And, and that was, we were kind of dead in the water until we were able to fix that and we were a little bit um, disheartened at that point because we, we didn't know what the problem was and um, but it was an easy fix and uh, or it turned out to be. it turned out to be an easy fix and um, but as soon as that happened then we started rolling and everything sounded great and then uh, that was it okay clear playback has been achieved and Wynn finished setting up the hardware that would capture the signals from the 30 tracks of audio on the old tapes and route them through to a recorder which is, I, I guess, is just a, a computer, right? Like a laptop computer? Yeah, it's a laptop with a mixer is involved. Um, so the mixer is pretty much, that's the one that's extracting the data from the tapes, from the Soundscriber. Um, so the target record is pretty much reading the tapes. And then we also have uh, the storage on hand from the laptop, where we extract the data back up to down. And then furthermore, uh, that's when I process the data. Let's talk about some numbers. There are 30 different tracks of material on this tape, and I know that one of them was iRig, and we don't really care about that. Right. But on a, what is it, a 14 or 15 hour? Form? One and a half, sometimes 16 hours. How much material in, in computer size, the, the number that, that people understand, how much material is that on one tape? Um, we're talking about uh, just one tape? Yeah. Uh, one tape of probably about, uh, I don't remember exact numbers, but. Uh, Gigabytes? Terabytes? Uh, gigabytes. Gigabytes. Uh, you have like hundreds of terabytes. Uh, gigabytes. Hundreds of gigabytes on just one tape. Yes. And you got how many tapes? Uh, we have about 30 tapes. Yeah. 30 tapes. So so we need about terabytes. We're talking about terabytes here. Ultimately, that you're, you're recording onto a laptop computer and then offloading onto some removable storage. Yes. So from there on, I carry it to another laptop. That's when I do my all the processing work on the data. Um. Okay, talk about that while we're there. Processing, I, I can understand, and I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. I'm not even a. I mean, I know how to use this end of the microphone, not the other end. Um, I understand that you play back the tapes, and and you've got this data that comes off of this audio, people talking, converted into uh, files on your laptop computer. But then, what do you have to do to that? You said you had to process it. What do you have to do to that? What are you trying to turn it into? Uh, we're not really turning it into um, pretty much what I process is I kind of break down those 14 hour and a half or probably 15, 16 depends on the tapes into 30 minute chunks. That way it'd be, it'd be easier to research and study on it on how the communication within the flight uh, mission control centers really works like all this risk cross communications uh, interactions between all the flight controllers and engineers all the back rooms um, at the time so 30 minutes would actually be an ideal for all the researchers that's doing, you know, trying to develop all these techniques, speech techniques, that kind of like using, I mean, I was involved, I'll tell it <clears throat> later, but that's pretty much what I was doing, just break it up in chunks, in 30 minute chunks. It's for easy to do research on. And that's the, the research that Hansen, his academic research that he's originally interested in this, the reason it got him interested in yes, this. Yes, he's his PhD student, pretty much working on the developing speech uh, techniques. Okay, you got a 14 and a half or 15 or 16 hour long tape and it's your job to play it back and record it. Play back the tape and record it on the, on the computer. Walk me through what it's like to, uh, you know, on a day when you would come to work at the Johnson Space Center and have to, and, and play back, you know, one tape and then another and another. What was any of those days like? My daily um, 
work here at NASA, I mean, at, at the studio, um, I would come in, uh, I would run the tapes, um, and I would let it run for maybe 14 and a half hours. That's when I stop it, when the, the tape actually stopped, and I would stop and I would distract the data. So I would spend about um, 55, about 50 to 55 hours a week trying to get the tapes, process the tapes, kind of listen to the tapes, write down notes. It looks like a librarian type of, uh, you know, storage uh, for info. And a lot of other things as well. Um, from uh, writing down the time code, uh, when would this play, pretty much the date, the time, and everything had to be details. I mean, that's involved with the tapes. It had to be jotted down somewhere in my notebook. If the tape runs for 14 hours or more, I'm guessing you're not coming in in the morning and starting it and sitting there waiting until it ends. That'd be an awful long day. Well, at first we did talk about how, how we handle the tape uh, running. Um, so we're trying to do maybe seven at a time, seven hours at a time. And then it'll be like two sections, seven hour one day, then seven hour the next day. But uh, no, we decided we're going to do one tape per day. And uh, I would sometimes I would run it around five o'clock uh, in the afternoon. And then I would come back in the morning, and then it would be almost about an hour, half an hour later, and then I can stop the tape. That's when I would extract the data down to the... I let it run overnight, pretty much. So my daily work is pretty much come in the morning, stop the tape, uh, extract the tape down to the storage, and then bring it down to a different laptop. And that's when I start uh, uh, process the data, breaking it in 30-minute chunks, and then kind of like have two, three backup, one for NASA and one for UTD. So we want NASA to have a copy as well. So I was I was like transferring data to data, from storage to storage. So it's pretty much take up all day and then have to listen to uh, Apollo 11, each chunks of the auto and all the channels that, that was available there. It was 30 channels, besides the iRig, which we, you know, it's time code. Right, yeah. uh, which nobody nobody with our, our kind of ears cares about. Um, you, you solved your problem of the bleed over there at the very beginning, uh, but what about after that? Did, did the mechanical part of this playback, did it all work pretty smoothly? Yes, everything worked smoothly, except the two wire was not in the right place. Uh, yeah, but everything mechanically wise, everything was smoothly running. That's that strikes me as as kind of surprising. Something that complicated and you know and brand new, those kind of things generally have problems that you have to solve. Well, yeah, I mean, the machine is pretty, a sound scraper is pretty old, um, dating back 1960s. Um, well, all the more reason why you yeah. might have problems. <laughs> yeah, but it was, you know, Greg and uh, one of the guys that was working to refine it, and uh, I guess it works well. It runs really well. I mean, it's still running now, but they, um, yeah. Okay, so you you guys did, figured out how to how to do this, and you executed. How long did it take? We were talking 30-something tapes. It was all of Apollo 11 and some portions of Apollo 13, right? Yes, it was actually Apollo 1, um, Gemini 8, Apollo, some Apollo 13, and the rest of Apollo 11. Um, I was able to done it within four months. Four months to just to digitize all digitize these tapes. and process and, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of like re- uh, bookkeeping as well. I don't, is that, is that kind of what you were expecting? Well, no. I didn't expect that I had to put in so, so much effort in it. But until down there, I was really into what I was doing. Then time just fly. So I was I was very enjoying doing it. And, you know, I, I have a good time here. 
um, all the folks here are really nice folks, so it kind of helped me, you know, not being too bored or too, you know, just stressed out too much. If I need help, I'm, I got all the support down here as well. I think in the end, we digitized roughly in the neighborhood of about 60 to 80 tapes, somewhere in that time frame. So we've got, you know, at least another 120 to 150 tapes that we could go and digitize if we had the resources. Um, part of my, my mind, or in my mind, I still think, uh, Greg probably doesn't want to see us here anymore, but uh, um, I would love to actually go through and just keep doing this. I think it would be a cool uh, project for... Uh, undergraduate students that have interest in this to kind of, you know, participate in, in, in a digitizing process like that. And it would increase the uh, raw data that you would have for your original, uh, for the original uh, study goal. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you think of this as kind of like there were two phases here. One was to kind of build a solution that would allow us to digitize it. The second part was actually digitizing the audio and then organizing it in a way where uh, the naming convention could allow you to search through the audio blocks in some organized way. To start to put the right. different conversations that occurred simultaneously together, which yeah. you had talked about. And before before we go there, after all the work that you had put in to, to go ahead and, and figure out how to rescue these tapes, how to be able to play them back so that you could get all the material, the actual execution of that plan worked without any real problem okay uh, well okay. Uh, yeah you said without any real problem. well but i will say you know maybe we we try to follow uh nasa's uh uh, uh you know either mindset or mantra which is you know whatever the if there's a problem how do we solve it how do we move forward with it so we always took a positive attitude students that I had involved with this. There were undergraduate students, there were graduate PhD students. I had staff members. Abhijit San Juan was one of my postdoc staff researchers that was instrumental throughout the whole project here. Um, Tuan Nguyen was one of our undergrad students that helped on the digitizing process. Um, many, many different types of students that were involved with this. Everyone always took a positive attitude. And I just kept reminding people look, you know, this is something that what you're doing is work, but what the outcome will be preservation of something that will live on for a very, very long time. And it's something that we think would help uh, STEM and would help hopefully NASA and people understand that, you know, when NASA and when the United States committed to going to the moon, um, John F. Kennedy said, we're going to get there. Uh, NASA didn't have all the solutions when John Kennedy said, we're going to get there. Um, and so, to me, this was a time in, in, in our country where, uh, you know, we set a goal and we, did, we may not have had all the answers at that instant when we set the goal, but people work collaboratively together to ensure that they're going to achieve that. So, this was something that we've, we tried to inspire the students that were all involved with this, with that mindset. Hey, we're going to need to get together on this storage stuff. Find out how much rocks and all that jazz they got. Flight span. Hey, I. Uh, has anybody written up what they think the water in the suit business? I see we'll be asking a couple of questions. Raj, uh, since we don't have com call, uh, Luke, would you please relay this message to voice control for me? How about writing it down on a piece of paper? Shipping it up to you? 
Well, the only reason I think he could do it, because ordinarily on the ground, Buzz could not, at maximum never. effort, get his heart up that never. high. Never. I've never seen him above 150. Yeah, I don't think that's what I was saying. So it's undoubtedly, they, but this would be really interesting. Did you get any insights into what it takes to land, what it took to land on the moon? Yeah, I think so. Uh, one of the things that sort of stood out for me is how similar these recordings sound to the loop audio that I can listen to now um, of the folks supporting Space Station. Um, it's, it's the same calm, cool, collected professionalism. Um, all of these people working in a very, in a highly coordinated way uh, on these complicated engineering problems. And you know, sometimes with even with people's lives on the line, and they always sound like it's just business as usual. Um, it's obviously a high-stress environment, but they're always focused, and nothing ever really seems to rattle them. So it's impressive, I think. And I think that listening to these recordings, um, you hear that, and you hear that then. So I think they obviously must have sort of laid the groundwork for that way of working. Um, back in the early years of manned spaceflight. And I think what I, I like best about the release of this audio is that this is the rest of the story of humans landing on the moon. Everyone on the planet knows about the moon landing. It's one of the most important engineering accomplishments of mankind. And everyone has heard the audio of Neil Armstrong saying one small step. But very few people have heard the audio from the rest of the team from Mission Control. And these people were instrumental in the success of that mission. Uh, yes, Neil was the man on the moon, but there were a lot of people on the ground who made that possible. And they are very much a part of that history. So this is a historical treasure chest of audio that allows us to hear the rest of that story, um, the story of man landing on the moon. Surgeon, speak to you. Go meet to you. Um. The best thing we can find out is that we're at least a half hour away from uh, even starting preparation for EVA. But I was wondering if we might want to go back and reconfigure for uh, one man coming out of the limb for ECG. Go ahead, trajectory. Hey, I think those uh, liquid fuel garments weigh 3.6 pounds apiece. Well, look, at uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to get uh, the best guess of what we think we got loaded, trajectory. I mean, into that gum spacecraft. And then run some. I've written that too. My jet track, go ahead. Do you still see indications that we have two-way data? Uh, Roger, we're checking your uh, teletype sent out of your data now. We'll get back to you. Roger. John Hansen and his team overcame some incredible obstacles, but they succeeded. They transformed tens of thousands of hours of raw audio of American history from analog tape into the digital files that they would need to do their academic research. So how'd that turn out? Find out on the next episode. That's three down and one to go. We have a final installment in this series coming up next time when we'll find out how the team turned digital audio into coordinated transcripts and added video and stills to make a terrific experience that you can enjoy yourself online anytime. 
Until then, I'll just say the Heroes Behind the Heroes episodes of Houston We Have a Podcast are produced by Greg Wiseman and me, with editing and audio engineering by Greg and help from Alex Perryman. Thanks to our guests John Hansen, Tuan Nguyen, and Greg Wiseman, and to Nora Moran and Gary Jordan for helping us make this all work. Check out all of our podcast episodes at nasa.gov slash podcasts. While you're there, you can check out all the other NASA podcasts that you can find. Things like Welcome to Rocket Ranch, On a Mission, NASA in Silicon Valley, and there's more, too. They're all there right at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts.